Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today's no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Montreal, Canada. Welcome to the show, Mark Corrin. Oh, thank you. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. Mark, great to have you here. Now, you have an interesting background. Like me, you started in the technology industry and made a bit of a left turn in the career into the world of real estate investing. And you're in a particular segment that we haven't spent a lot of time on on the show in the area of strip malls. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background and how you took this journey into the world of real estate investing? Well, 1995, I graduated from McGill University in computer engineering, and I spent quite a few years in there saving up some money and putting it into uh, retirement funds and buying stocks and so on. In 2008, I had a nice surprise with a a nice market correction. And I said to myself, there's got to be a better way. And of course, uh, I grew up with my parents having owned a couple of residential spots in Montreal while we went to university. And they said, Mark, you should never work in real estate, you know, be be an engineer. So, you know, 20 years went by and I said to myself about 10 years ago, look, I got to start buying some real estate. So I started by buying a few houses here and there and uh, the zeros weren't big enough. So after a while, uh, I wanted to buy some commercial real estate and I wanted to do strip malls. Of course, some of these projects were too big for me to handle on my own. So I started putting a bunch of uh, friends and family together and put some money together and we would syndicate and uh, we'd buy the real estate for them. So that's basically how I got into real estate. I love that story. And you know, there's so many different ways to get into real estate. There's just no one way to do it. And oftentimes, it's simply finding that path of least resistance, the path that opens up in front of you. Today, strip malls, you know, is in the world of retail. Retail is in a world of hurt. There's store closures North America wide. And uh, some segments of the retail market are shrinking. Certainly some segments of the retail real estate market are shrinking. How is it that it makes sense for you? Retail uh, and commercial strip malls are absolutely terrifying to me. So I'm going into a world uh, where I see the risk. I see the, the price per square foot changing and so on. So, you know, like they say, real estate is all about location, location, location. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is product, product, product. What kind of strip mall do I have is really what I'm focused on. So um, I won't be buying strip malls with um, with things that are uh, that will be let's let's say victimized by the internet and by Amazon and all those guys. So for example, in one of our strip malls, we've got a, a McDonald's and a government-run liquor store, which consists of seventy percent. So those things, those two types of products, I believe are. Um, not subject to the whims of the internet world. People are going to go buy their McDonald's, they're going to go eat it there, and they're going to go and pick up their alcohol. I don't think that Amazon is allowed to deliver uh, that kind of stuff. And those are traffic generators, traffic drivers for the other people uh, that are coming, for the other tenants that are in that mall. So the second part that I, that I work on with that is I pick, on, pick the proper location. I look for locations that are close to subways in Montreal or close to high traffic density areas where there isn't much room for more development. So these are a couple of ways that I think uh, that I'm a bit more safe in investing in strip malls. You know, I think that makes a lot of sense. There are certain things that you simply cannot get online. You can't get your haircut online. You can't visit your dentist online. All of those things had better be local. And yet some of the things that we've traditionally thought of as local, like food service preparation, may be up for disruption. I think the restaurant model is going to be changing with a lot of some of the new initiatives like cloud kitchens. Travis Kalanick from, from Uber 
is got a new startup in that arena that looks to upend the traditional restaurant model. How much of an impact do you think that's going to have on this particular segment? That's a really good question. In our portfolio, we've got a couple of restaurants as well, and uh, I, I do get concerned over them. I know that some of them benefit from the internet, from these Uber-like services, that they get more and more volume coming through their door, and it's more about delivery. If we look, for example, this past summer, I had a couple of bids on a couple of Pizza Hut properties, and I thought I was going to do very well, and the cap rate was suspiciously high. I thought I was going to be a genius for getting in there. But then the more research I did, the more I saw that Pizza Hut themselves is pivoting away from those old roofs. If you remember growing up with the Pizza Hut roof that was all red and so on, and the the 4,000 square foot spot, they're replacing those all for the Delco model, the delivery carry out model, because their volume is coming more from delivery and carry out uh, as opposed to that being a destination. Those new models are sitting within uh, strip malls themselves. So I'm finding that the restaurant industry itself is migrating. Some of it's going to a smaller footprint, especially in the mid to low range kinds of restaurants. The big ones, of course, they'll keep uh, occupying their big spaces, the ones that people want to go to, the destination ones. But a lot of it is going to be about internet and, fa- and fast delivery food. Um, so I think that's where the, that market is going personally. I agree with that. And the traditional restaurant model has been based around that sit down front of house and A dining experience is just that. It's a dining experience, and you'll go out for that on a Friday night or a date night or something like that. But there's also certain nights of the week when, you know, a couple get home and neither of them wants to cook, and they're both just beat, and they just want food prepared and delivered, and that's it. It's just uh, reducing the friction in the kitchen is kind of the way that I like to say it, and that's a different model. It's not a sit-down meal. Yeah, I think the pressure is towards smaller square footage, not these big cavernous restaurants anymore. Small places with quick kitchens, with the deliveries that are going to go all around. I don't know what's going to happen in the next 10, 15 years, but a lot of automated vehicles are coming in place. I'm a big lover of those. The Tesla is already driving me uh, you know, somewhat um, hands-free on the highway, and I don't think it's going to be very long until those things are going to be automated fully. I look at the McDonald's as well. In in the, one of our tenants is McDonald's, and of course, you can order things on your phone and actually drive up to the McDonald's and not even go through the drive-through. They'll bring it straight to you, right? So it won't be very long. And sorry, the cashiers themselves are being replaced with computers as well. So it won't be very long until. A lot of this stuff is going to be extremely highly uh, automated all the way to getting delivered straight to your door, which they're already doing through Airbnb, uh, sorry, not uh, through Uber at the moment, Uber Eats. McDonald's is also delivering that way. And kids these days, the millennials are growing up with, you know, McDonald's at their their fingerprints. And yet, uh, you know, McDonald's still likes to have their big footprint, uh, at least for now. But let's see what happens in the future. I agree with that. In fact, we experienced that not just here in North America. In Europe this year, we saw legions, and I mean legions, of Uber Eats drivers on bicycles hanging out outside McDonald's. And they they would run in, they'd pick up an order, they'd hop on their bike, and they'd go do a delivery. And increasingly, even in medium-sized towns all over Europe, that's the model. McDonald's is amazing. It's leading the charge on restaurants. Uh, I won't get into the debate as to whether the food is healthy. I think there are healthy choices. That'll be my my personal take on the situation. But as far as technology and delivery of calories per dollar, they do something that almost nobody else does in the industry, and they're the market leader. It's a fascinating business model to follow. What are some of the other things that you look at to some extent future-proof your investments? 
Well, of course, we've got to invest in the the, uh, the envelope of the building, make sure that it's going to be ready for the years and years to come. Uh, you know, there's all the tactical stuff, of course, uh, keeping a healthy reserve and making sure you don't throw all your money out the door with dividends in case you have uh, some some safety concerns about uh, having to do a, a sudden renovation. Uh, so that's the, the primary way we future-proof it. We keep an eye on interest rates as well. We very much decide whether we're going to uh, take a five or a 10-year or a two-year interest rate, depending on what the exit strategy is going to be. So those are some of the things that we do on a tactical basis. I think they're a little bit more boring, but uh, you know, you really, you really have to watch for the basics uh, as you're managing a uh, strip mall. A lot of people focus on simply finding deals wherever the numbers make sense. It doesn't matter what the radius is from where their business is located or where they live. What's your perspective? The investors at, or slash partners that I bring on board are I try to match them to what we want, the rest of us want. And we're typically between 40 and 50, up to 55 years old. And we have a 10 to 15 year horizon in front of us. I tell the the people who invest with me, don't expect any of your money back for five or 10 years. We're going to let it ride. Maybe we'll pull a bit out on refi, but that's fine. Um, However, if these people are on the same train of 10, 15, 20 year outlook, and it's part of their uh, retirement package, then they can sit with us safely. And then that's when we really need to focus. In answer to your question, we really need to focus on what's it going to be like 15 years from now, not five years from now, not two years from now. So that's why, you know, we'll put in bids, maybe 10 bids a year, eight bids a year, and maybe one will hit because we make bids that are realistic. We securitize and de-risk it based on the price that we're willing to pay and the conditions that we're willing to see. And we take a look at the leases. Is there a 10-year lease, 25-year lease? I just signed with one of government uh, liquor board a 25-year lease. McDonald's is asking for two more extensions of 10 years, and, they're, and they've still got nine on this one. So these are 30, 20, 30-year 30 leases. So this is the type of product that I'm working with at the moment rather than some quick turns or flips or that kind of stuff. And in that case, all the stuff I mentioned before is really, really important. The location, the location, and the product type, and whether that business is sustainable in the long run. And I think that uh, alcohol and, um, and fast food is sustainable in the long run, for example. So those, should, those could be some very good anchors for the entire projects. Now, let's talk a little bit about building design because strip malls come in all different shapes and sizes. Some of them older buildings, 10, 12 foot ceiling heights. Some of them are 14 to 18 foot ceiling heights. If you're looking to attract a major national brand, something that's a franchise model, what kind of buildings do you have to go into? What, where we go at the moment is we buy buildings that are already tenanted and we try to get good, um, we, we try to get in there with a good anchor in there. Now, of course, there's not that much upside, but there's not that much risk that goes with it. So we're a very conservative group of investors where we go for that kind of stuff. If I were to, let's say, find a piece of land and then develop on that piece of land, then I suppose we would be looking for, uh, you know, a nice, wonderful rectangle with uh, 14 feet high and that could have some of the smaller, very easily divisible, some of the smaller restaurants that I was talking about for uh, such as um, the Pizza Hut. You know, they're going to the Delco model. So we've got to get some smaller restaurants in there. So something that's more convenient to change. Uh, We do have one place where the pillars in front of the building cannot be moved. So uh, the pillars that, that support the outside wall. So those are very problematic. So I really like as an engineer, basically, I like modularity. 
So I got to make sure that the building itself can be expanded or contracted. Each of the spaces can be expanded or contracted based on um, based on usage. The other thing that I found interesting is in some of our other commercial spots, we had basements. Some basements tend to be very, very interesting for things like restaurants or places that need storage where the, the main floor is at a premium, let's say $30, $40 a square foot, but the basement you can rent out at $10, $12 a square foot. So a restaurant that needs, uh, you know, one third of its space in storage can put that into the basement. So I think basements are very, very useful and not always in every commercial space. I love that. One of the things that's always a concern when you talk about commercial is compared with, say, multifamily residential. If I have a vacancy in an apartment, I'm going to fill it in a month, maybe two on the outside. But in commercial space, you're looking for that perfect tenant for that spot. You're looking at an investment in tenant improvements. You could easily, and I'm sure you've experienced this, have a situation where space is vacant for two, three, six, 12 months. How do you handle that? Yeah, that's where break-even ratios are really important, as well as lease conditions are super important as well. So if you're break-even, and that's why putting a bid on and having a good price on a property as opposed to a crazy price on a property de-risks your project. So what I would say is make sure that uh, you buy at a proper cap rate that you can get good financing. If, you, if you're willing to put more than 25% down, you can de-risk your project that way. So your break-even point moves down. The other way to do it is to keep a reserve in place, right? Keep a nice, healthy reserve, get a good interest rate and so on. From that, lines of credit are wonderful for those kinds of things. And nothing beats plain old cash from your investors, but nobody wants to, to do cash calls. So that's not fun at all. The other uh, approach that some people do is they'll keep advertising uh, spaces for rent, for rent, for rent, so that they have a pipeline already full when uh, a vacancy is going to come up. You got to keep a close eye on your rent roll because if you've got, uh, you know, let's say seven tenants and two of them are coming up in the next year, hey, why not put up a for rent sign and make them nervous <laughs> at one time? Oh my goodness, they're planning to not renew the lease or so, or so on. And you, you know, you might get some, uh, some good offers well ahead of time, right? The other trick that I like is within your leases, there's, there's just a few letters difference between leasable space and leased space. So, and let me explain that. In a triple net lease, the tenants will pay for the taxes. And if they pay for their proportion of the taxes based on leasable area, and they own 10%, they lease 10% of the space, they'll pay 10% of tax. But if you write in the lease that it should be on leased area with an ED at the end, that means that if there's a vacancy that happens, then the other tenants will pay for those extra uh, fees. Got it. So that's another way to protect yourself a little bit. It's a little nasty little trick at times, but you know, that can be part of the negotiations of any lease. Yeah, yeah. So it goes into the extra rent. Mm-hmm. All these ways to mitigate your cash flow. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. So if folks want to connect or if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Well, you know, for the fun of it, I decided to put together a blog, markcoran.com. Feel free to go and have a look. Victor, maybe you can put that in the show notes or something. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, people reach out to me all the time and I'm very available on the, the socials, uh, all of them, and uh, markcran.com if you want to read more about me or listen to some other podcasts that I'm on. I'm always welcoming of uh, new ideas and new opportunities and new people. So that's Mark Coran, spelled M-A-R-C-K-O-R-A-N.com. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to Mark. Have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.